scripture reading this morning. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. It's a wonderful sound to have in a church, by the way, isn't it? Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark. It's the resurrection account that you find in chapter 16. And I'd like to read for you verses 1 through 8. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word to us this morning. This is a great day, isn't it? I mean, Easter is such a great day. We have spent here the last several weeks uh, immersed in the account of Jesus' suffering. And we have been struck by pro how profound his suffering was. His anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, his betrayal and arrest, his trials, his beatings, his crucifixion. Should I move? Should I do something different? Okay. Okay. <laughs> and... We're struck by how profound his sufferings were, but more amazing for us is that he did it willingly. And even more astonishing that he did it for us, that somehow uh, in his sufferings and his crucifixion, Jesus was bearing on himself the appropriate punishment for our crimes against the goodness of God. I mean, amazing, right? Today... We come out of the stories of suffering. We come out of the darkness and gloom and into the light of day, as, as it were. Out of the tomb and into the garden. Because it's Easter. And the account of Jesus' suffering ends with the note that we have sung about already this morning. The note of victory. The note of triumph. Right, for him and for us. Uh, Mark chapter 15 ends with Jesus being somewhat hurriedly buried. He's wrapped in a linen cloth and put in the tomb uh, because it is almost the sacred Sabbath. It's sundown on Friday. There's no time to anoint Jesus properly for burial. And so he's put rather quickly into the tomb and the anointing will have to wait until Sunday morning, a couple of days later. And the last thing that Mark records in chapter 15 is that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They had accompanied Jesus' body, and they had watched to see where he was placed in the tomb. And the very next thing that Mark records is that as soon as the Sabbath was over, they went and bought the spices, and then on Sunday morning, early daybreak, they went to anoint Jesus' body. What Mark does not record 
is the intervening day and a half from Friday sundown until dawn on Sunday morning. And as we read through the story, we're not, we're not even given the chance to pause and experience the Saturday. We know from the Gospel of John that still on Sunday evening, the disciples were gathered together behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They had been there presumably Saturday and part of Friday as well. Almost three days, trapped with their fear, talking probably in hushed tones, uh, maybe sending someone that they trusted out to buy food for them, afraid. And I wonder what they were feeling on that Saturday in that time. What was that like for them? And for three years, they had followed Jesus. They had been astounded by the power of his teaching, by the power of his miracles. They had come to gradually understand that God was present in Jesus in a way different than they had ever imagined before. And with that understanding came a host of expectations for them of sharing in the glory and the greatness of this Jesus, God's chosen one. And then they're stunned when in a period of less than 24 hours, Jesus is betrayed and arrested and tried and beaten, condemned, crucified, dead, and buried. Now think about that for a moment. Imagine leaving everything that you know and living 24 hours a day, seven days a week for almost three years with a small community of people focused entirely around one person or one idea. And then in one horrific day, it's all gone. Your world collapses. Okay, that's what had happened to the disciples. There's probably psychological trauma. Emotionally, they're wrecked. Spiritually, they're in chaos. They're lost. They're confused. And then for most of Friday and through the night and all through Saturday and through the night and into Sunday morning, they're in this room with doors locked and windows barred, nothing but their shared despair. And I wonder what they did. You ever wonder what their conversations were like in that room? Different personality types, some of them were probably quiet and would sit in the corner, sullen, depressed. Others... You know, the type verbal, got to process it by talking out loud. And I wonder if the quiet ones wish the talkers would shut up. I wondered if the talkers wish the quiet ones would show that they cared. Did they talk about Judas Iscariot? Did the others know about Peter's denial? Or was he keeping that to himself? Were they all humiliated that they had all abandoned Jesus at his arrest in the garden? Did they talk about that? Were their nerves on edge? Did tempers flare? Mark is entirely silent about that day. But you can bet that it was probably the darkest time that the disciples had ever experienced in their life. The resurrection account does not begin with the demoralized disciples. It begins with the women. They too had followed Jesus. They had been a part of his community. Uh, unlike the disciples, they had been at the cross watching from a distance, but they had been there. They had followed as Jesus' body was taken and laid in the tomb. They saw where they had placed him. And Mark says that as soon as the Sabbath was over, that is at sundown on Saturday, they would have gone and bought the appropriate spices so that in keeping with Jewish custom, they could anoint Jesus' body for burial. 
And then the next morning on Sunday, as soon as it's light, the earliest possible opportunity, they take those spices and they make their way through the cool of the morning uh, toward the tomb. Now, they're expecting, obviously, to see Jesus' corpse there. They're not expecting the resurrection, even though Jesus had said on at least two occasions very recently that not only would he be handed over to death in Jerusalem, but that three days later he would rise from the dead. But that's not on their radar at all. It didn't click. They didn't remember. They didn't believe something. But they're on their way to the tomb, fully expecting to find Jesus' body there. And as they walk to the tomb, it suddenly strikes them that they have not made arrangements for the stone to be moved away. In front of the tomb, there would have been a large, uh, roughly carved stone disc that would have been set in kind of a downsloped trough. And to put it in place in front of the door is relatively easy. A strong man could just roll it down into place. But to roll it up, away from the door, uphill, would be very, very difficult work for several strong men. And here come the women early one morning. And they're thinking to themselves, what are we going to do? We can't even, we can't even get to his body. But as the tomb comes into view, they're surprised and dismayed, I think, to find that the stone has already been rolled out of the way. A couple of summers ago, uh, our home was broken into while we were away on vacation. And I remember coming home before my family, relatively late at night, coming into the house and seeing the broken window for the first time. And not only was the window broken, it had been taken out of its frame and leaned against the wall inside the house. I immediately knew someone had been in the house. And my first thought was a sinking in my stomach and, oh my goodness, what has happened? And I wonder if the women come to the tomb and they see the stone is moved. It's not the way they left it. It's not what they expected to find. And I wonder if they thought, oh my goodness, what has happened? They've taken Jesus' body. Something has happened. They've, they've robbed the grave. Something. And they enter the tomb. I think they show remarkable courage that they enter the tomb. With a certain amount of fear, I'm sure. But they enter the tomb and are startled to find someone inside the tomb, a young man dressed in white, sitting on the right-hand side of the tomb. Uh, the tomb would have had kind of ledges carved around the interior perimeter to lay bodies if it was a family tomb, several bodies. And in one of these ledges, a young man dressed in white is sitting. And he says to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. This man is an angel, you know, dressed in white, the, the standard initial, don't be afraid. Angels always felt compelled to say that first whenever they encountered someone. Uh, the proclamation of Jesus' resurrection, which has overtones of the proclamation of his birth, by the way. To you is born a Savior. He is not here. He is risen. Go and you will find him. And the angel says a few specific things in his declaration to the women. He identifies the risen one as Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. And then he points them to the place and says, see the place where they laid him. One of the suggested arguments against the resurrection is that the women went to the wrong tomb. They simply made a mistake. But they didn't. Mark, the end of chapter 15, makes a point of saying, 
that Mary and the other Mary saw where they laid him. Okay, they know the place. They've been there. They know they're coming back to this spot. And the angel says, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. In other words, if you're coming to this tomb, it must be Jesus that you're looking for because this is where you would expect to find him. The angel doesn't say, he is not here. He's buried in that tomb over there. No, he says, he is not here. He is risen. And then the angel says, look, see the spot. And Mary and Mary can look at it and say, that's right. He was right there. I saw him laying right there. They didn't make a mistake. And then the angel says something absolutely wonderful. See if you catch it. He says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. There are a couple of really grace-rich words in there. Did you catch them? And Peter. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Why the special attention to Peter? All of the disciples had abandoned Jesus. They'd all fled him in the garden. But Peter had not once but three times swore up and down that he did not even know who Jesus was. Peter had abandoned Jesus not just physically, but he had turned his back on him relationally. Suppose that my wife was arrested on some trumped-up charge, and for some reason the whole city of Calgary turned against her and was crying for her blood. And I'm compelled to find out what is going to happen to her, and so I sneak into the back of the courtroom... And as I'm watching the proceedings, somebody looks over their shoulder and sees me and says, wait a second, didn't I see you with Kara somewhere before? And to my wife's deep hurt, I say, never seen her before. Somebody else says, no, you are her husband. And I get all angry and upset and say, her? Are you crazy? I've never even heard of her before today. And as my wife hears those words and watches me, I turn my back and walk out of the courtroom. That's what Peter had done. Despite all of his blustering, despite all his professions of loyalty, I would die for you, Jesus, he said. When the time came, he just wilted, withered. He failed miserably. And the angel says, tell the disciples that Jesus wants to see them, and tell Peter, especially. He might think that he's not included. He's failed too miserably. He might think that Jesus can't mean him. I want to ask you this morning, if you are like Peter today, okay, this idea of the forgiveness and the grace and the love of God, yeah, I believe it, sure, but that's true for the other disciples. That's not for me. I failed too miserably. I failed too often. Okay, Peter denied three times, but I've sinned 3,000 times, and God is tired of hearing my, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. My professions of loyalty don't mean anything to him. Or maybe you think of this one thing in your life that you think God can't see past that. Okay? The abortion. The time you hurt someone that you dearly loved. That great sin that no one knows about. Maybe something that you didn't even do. The abuse. Something in your life you think God can't see past that. And the angel says, tell Peter, tell the disciples, but tell 
and then you hear your name. Tell them it's okay. Tell them I want to see them. Because Jesus went to the cross for that thing, that sin. Jesus went to the cross for those wounds. And he wants to include you now in his life. Let me tell you in no uncertain terms this morning that God loves you. Jesus loves you. He knows you. And he invites you to receive his grace and his forgiveness. There's nothing in your life that is too great for the death and resurrection of Christ to be sufficient for. And to the extent that you keep that safe distance between you and Jesus, to that extent, you will be ruled by your sin, by your shame, by your guilt, by your inadequacy. But to the extent that you are able to hear hear him say your name, to the extent that you can dare to trust that his grace is for you, you will find him taking your hand and walking with you step by small but steady step into life, into forgiveness, into wholeness again. Peter got to experience exactly that. We'll actually talk about that a little bit more in more detail in a few weeks. But the transformation in Peter through the grace of Jesus is as absolute as was his failure before. Go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Jesus had said that on his way to Gethsemane, the night of his arrest, three nights earlier. After I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. They had just heard it. The angel wants to remind the women to tell the disciples what Jesus has said. It's worth noting here, probably, that the significant role given to women in the gospel accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and specifically to the fact that they are the first witnesses to the resurrection, is very important. This is one of the strong arguments for the reliability of the gospel accounts that we have. You may have heard the contention that the gospels are products of the late second century church, kind of manufactured or embellished accounts Uh, built up around the core of Jesus, but with lots of of legendary or mythical material, and that the church created these accounts to shore up their authority and to lay a stronger foundation for their new religion. Well, one gaping hole, and there are several in that, is that there's no way that a second-century writer kind of making up these details would have made the women the first witnesses to the resurrection. In that culture where women were considered second-class citizens, where their testimony did not have credibility or any legal weight, um, to have the women be the witnesses to the resurrection would have actually lessened the credibility of the Gospels. If somebody was making up the story, they surely would have made the apostles, who were the founders of the church, the heroes. They wouldn't have looked nearly as bad as they do in the Gospels. And the fact that all four New Testament Gospels unanimously place the women first at the tomb after the resurrection can only be explained by the fact that that's really how it was and that the Gospel accounts that we have are faithful accounts of not only the resurrection but the life and words and death and teaching and resurrection of Christ. Notice the women's response, though, in verse 8. 
Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It's a bit of a theme in Mark, uh, the failure of Jesus' followers to respond appropriately. And here the women keep what they've seen to themselves because they are afraid. Fear was the usual response when Jesus was revealed in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 4, Jesus uh, calms the storm and the disciples are terrified. In chapter 5, he casts demons out of a man and the townspeople hear about it and are afraid and ask Jesus to leave their region. Uh, In chapter uh, chapter 6, the disciples are afraid of Jesus when he reveals himself to them uh, again in power. Fear was the natural response when Jesus was disclosed to people. And so fear keeps the women, in this case at least, from uh, obeying the command and it keeps them silent. Fear was not unusual, but I'm not sure what they were afraid of. Afraid of the angel, kind of a residual fear from that encounter. Fear of the possibility that maybe Jesus was in fact alive. Okay, that's not a groundless fear. If, if you heard today that, that your loved one who was dead was alive and you thought maybe that, that could be true, would you not be afraid? Maybe it was fear that they wouldn't be believed when they told what they had seen. I don't know. But whatever it was, fear keeps them silent. At first, at least. Does fear keep us silent? I think it often does. And yet in each one of our lives, and certainly in mine, there are people who are like the disciples, who are like Peter. People who are, as it were, locked in a room with their despair or their sin or their guilt or their shame or their fear. People who need to know the living Jesus. People who need to know his grace and his hope and his life. There are people in our lives who need to have the doors opened and the windows unbarred to the sunlight of God's grace and the fresh air of his work in their lives. And we can't afford to be afraid. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him of whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear if no one tells them? Because faith comes by hearing. So pray for courage to speak Jesus to people. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to do something even though you're still afraid to do it. Jesus is risen. Go, tell, said the angel to the women, and I think to us as well. There's one more thing that I want to notice in this account from Mark this morning. And it's something that never occurred to me until I was studying this passage, getting ready for this talk this morning, about six weeks ago. Do you ever wonder why there was an angel at the tomb? Why, when the women came to the tomb, why wasn't Jesus there saying, Here I am, I am risen? It's only later that the women, the disciples, see Jesus. Only later do they have an experience, an encounter with him. There's a very important uh, Bible and faith principle here, and it's this. Proclamation precedes experience. 
In the Bible, it's proclamation. It is declaration that comes first. Faith comes by hearing, the Bible says. And the Bible even begins that way, right? God speaks and things come into existence. God's word is paramount. It is living. It is active. It has power. We do not live by bread alone, but by the word that comes to us from the mouth of God. And this means, for example, that what these gospel accounts are, are not just recording of the fact, they're a proclamation of truth. And here, in this account, Mark 16, first the angel proclaims the resurrection, and only then do the women and the disciples encounter Christ. Proclamation precedes experience. Proclamation takes precedence over experience. We tend to think that it's the other way around. But there's a reason why we have historically given the proclamation and teaching of the Word of God the central place in our worship experience. Because though the personal experience of God in Jesus is crucial, it is the Word of God that interprets that experience. It's the Word of God that tells us who Jesus is, what He has done, how we are to respond appropriately and live in the context of Jesus in our lives. It is the Word of God, not our experience, that forms the ground and the center of our life in Christ. And so we just heard a few moments ago, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is a stronger and better affirmation than another song. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. I don't know Jesus lives because he lives within my heart. I don't trust my heart. I don't trust my experience. Because today, I am rock solid in my faith. A week from now, I might doubt that God even exists. Tomorrow, I might not believe that God even loves me. And on Wednesday, he'll probably give me some gracious affirmation of his love and care. And if Thornhill Baptist Church is your church, trust me, the last thing that you want is a pastor who grounds his faith and ministry in his experience of the Lord. And if your own journey of faith is rooted in, say, music and worship or in a conference experience or something, and your Bible sits on the shelf, your spiritual life will not stand up. It will let you down when you need it to be the strongest. Now, don't get me wrong. Okay? Music and worship is an incredible gift to our souls. That's why we do it every week. That's why we did it longer this morning. But it is the proclamation of Jesus Christ in the word of God that is the bread of life to us. And I know that Jesus is alive, first and foremost, because God has declared it. The tomb is empty. It is the bold and unqualified testimony of Scripture that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is risen to life by the power of God. And by virtue of that, that he is declared with power to be the Son of God. And the Jesus I then experience and the God whose love I receive in Christ is the God, Father and Son of the Bible. And yes, we need to encounter and experience Christ. Okay? We cannot 
overemphasize the importance of the fact that it is, it is personal. We need to own it. There is a relationship between myself and God, between yourself and God, I trust. Don't want to undermine that. It is essential. But proclamation precedes experience. It is God's word that defines that relationship. It's God's word that brings it into being. Proclamation precedes experience. And so on Easter, we proclaim. And I proclaim to you this morning. We proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was crucified. We proclaim him as the eternal, living, reigning Son of God. We proclaim his victory over sin and death. Victory in which we get to share, by the way. We proclaim forgiveness of sin, all your sin, as Jesus bore the punishment for your sin and rose to life free from sin. We proclaim that the resurrection of Jesus means not just his triumph over suffering and death, but the ultimate triumph over all suffering and death and evil. That his resurrection is the guarantee of the redemption of creation and of the eternal reign of God. We proclaim to you a life bathed in God's love and grace. We proclaim that the life to which God calls you is the life that will bring you the greatest joy. Life lived, loving God by following Jesus. We proclaim this morning that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. We want to respond this morning by praying. And we're going to pray responsively. It'll be up on the screen. And I will lead us in prayer. And I'd like to ask you, if you would, to respond with the parts labeled congregation. 